Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. Whether you are a student prepping for tests and boards or a CRNA here to earn CEUs, we are glad you've joined us. For more about us, make sure to check us out on Instagram at Core Anesthesia and online at coreanesthesia.com. Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. I'm Cole here with Tanner. And today we're going to do one of our core module episodes on airway assessment and equipment. Uh, we're going to walk through the various forms of assessing a patient in the preoperative setting, as well as when you get the patient back in the room, what are different things you're looking for that's going to give you a sense of how difficult uh, an airway is going to be, what are the things that are appropriate and standardized is what we should do. On top of that, we're going to go through the various equipment, uh, anything from an oral airway to an LMA to an ET tube, and then also different types of techniques that we're going to be using with different equipment to handle a more difficult scenario. This is something that I feel like almost becomes second nature to you as you walk into a room and you start assessing an airway, but it's important that we go back and go over all the basics just so you know that you are covering all the different assessments and things that you should be looking for when you are assessing your patient, assessing their airway. So the thing that we're obviously trying to predict is our ability to intubate, ultimately to be able to ventilate the patient and uh, we know this, but in order to intubate, you need to align three axes. You need to align the oral axis, the pharyngeal axis, and the laryngeal axis. Oftentimes, we get a little bit lazy with this, and you just you know rely on your skill to be able to align those while you're DLing, or you don't need them aligned, and you're able to intubate anyways. But remember that these are the three axes that we're trying to align to get the best view. So before we get into our assessment, we should back up and just review some of the uh, rudimentary anatomy that you'll need to understand and remember as you are doing your airway assessment. Your oral and nasal cavity will come together in the pharynx. That is comprised of three different sections. You'll have your nasopharynx, your oral pharynx, and also your hypopharynx. Oftentimes, this is labeled as the laryngeal pharynx as well. Uh, same thing, hypopharynx and laryngeal pharynx. Moving caudal from the pharynx, you'll reach the larynx. And then moving down from that, you'll transition into the trachea. The larynx will extend from C3 to C6 in adults and contains three unpaired cartilages. Uh, remember, this is going to be your thyroid, epiglottis, and your cricoid cartilage. And then you have three that are paired cartilages, and those are going to be your corniculates, your retinoids, and then your cuneiform cartilage as well. Remember that your cricoid cartilage will form a complete ring around the trachea. It's the only cartilage that forms that complete ring. If you look at the larynx there from superior to inferior, the most superior cartilage will be the epiglottis. Underneath that, you'll have the hyoid bone followed by the thyrohyoid ligament. You have the thyroid cartilage, cricothyroid ligament, and then finally you have your cricoid cartilage. Again, that, that ring that goes all the way around the trachea. While we're here, let's talk about the cricothyrotomy that is going to be performed in a cannot intubate, cannot ventilate situation. This is going to be performed at the cricothyroid ligament. So you can feel that gap there between the uh, thyroid, just distal to that, you'll feel the cricoid cartilage. And right between that and that cricothyroid ligament is where you'll perform this procedure. So let's go in now to the sensory uh, nerves as we move down through the different anatomy. So starting at the top and the most superior side, uh, nasally, 
the anterior third of the nasal cavity is sensed by the trigeminal nerve. And if you remember, the trigeminal nerve is split into three different branches. So the ophthalmic branch is the one that's going to be used here. And a split off of that is the ethmoidal branch. Um, so just remember, it, it ultimately leads back to the trigeminal nerve. And then the branches of the maxillary division of the trigeminal nerve are going to form the sphenopalatine ganglion. And that supplies the sensory to the nasal septum. So just remember, anything that deals with the nasal cavity, nasal septum, that's all going to root back to the trigeminal nerve. As we move into the oral cavity, the greater and lesser palatine nerves are going to be branches off of that sphenopalatine ganglion that we just talked about. They're going to supply the sensation to both the hard and soft palates, respectively. So the greater goes with the hard, the lesser palatine goes with the soft. The trigeminal nerve can also then split into the mandibular branch, which contains the lingual nerve, which will supply the sensory to the anterior two-thirds of the tongue. So lingual makes sense for language. Your tongue is what you speak with. That's going to be the anterior two-thirds of the tongue. Now, as you move backwards in the oral cavity and into the oral pharynx up to the anterior side of the epiglottis, so everything from the, the posterior one-third of the tongue all the way back to the anterior side of the epiglottis, which is also known as the volecula, is going to be supplied by the glossopharyngeal nerve. Once you get past the epiglottis, though, that's where everything's going to change. So now you're going to be into the hypopharynx and into the larynx then after that. So this is where the vagus nerve comes into play. The vagus nerve is going to branch into the superior laryngeal and as well the recurrent laryngeal nerves. The superior laryngeal nerve further splits into the external and the internal branches. So there's a big difference here. The external branch contains no sensory innervation. The internal branch contains sensory innervation to that posterior side of the epiglottis up to the vocal cords. The recurrent laryngeal nerve is going to be the other split from the vagus nerve, and that's going to provide innervation to the rest of the larynx and the trachea below the vocal cords. So once you get past the vocal cords, that's where the recurrent laryngeal nerve is going to come into effect. So the recurrent laryngeal nerve, when it splits off from that vagus nerve on either side, the left and the right, it's going to go under the subclavian artery before coming back to innervate the larynx. So the left and the right are a little bit different here because the aortic arch is going to be coming off on that left side. So that gets in the way of the recurrent laryngeal nerve on the left side when it loops around that subclavian artery. So it actually goes around the arch as well. So if you have any type of comorbidities with the heart, you can actually see some uh, alteration in the sensation from the left recurrent laryngeal nerve. So really quick here, sensation from the top down, trigeminal and all of its branches cover everything in the nose and the anterior two-thirds of the mouth. When you get to the posterior third of the tongue, all the way back to the, the front side of that epiglottis, that's going to be the glossopharyngeal nerve. The back side of the epiglottis up to the vocal cords is going to be the interior branch of the superior laryngeal nerve. And then after you get past the vocal cords, that's going to be your recurrent laryngeal nerve. So hopefully you are still sticking with us. I know this beginning part is pretty dry and a lot of memorization as far as the different nerves and the cartilages, but it's important to have all this in order before we move on to actually what we're assessing. Cole just went through and talked about all the sensory nerves. And now let's talk about the actual motor innervation. The superior laryngeal nerve external division has the motor innervation for the cricothyroid muscle, which will elongate the vocal cords. The internal branch has no motor. That's going to be all sensory. I remember that because inside is where your feelings are. Inside is sensory. 
external is going to be motor. So internal has your sensory, no motor, and then your external is going to be where your motor function is innervated. All the other muscles in the larynx are going to be innervated uh, by the recurrent lingual nerve as far as the motor innervation goes. So that's very simple. Just the only one that you have to remember that's separate is the SLN external, and that's going to be your cricothyroid muscle, which is, again, going to be the elongation of your vocal cords. So your uh, recurrent lingual nerve, your RLN, is going to have innervation to the vocalis muscle that will shorten the vocal cords, your posterior cricoarytenoids that will abduct the vocal cords, and then your lateral cricoarytenoid is going to adduct the vocal cords. My dumb way to remember this, and this might not be helpful for you, but lateral cricoarytenoids, I think like you put your arms out laterally next to you, it looks like a plus sign to me you're going to adduct the vocal cords. And if you can see me, I'm putting my arms straight out next to me. looks like a big plus sign. So lateral cricoarytenoids is going to adduct your vocal cords. Your posterior cricoarytenoids will abduct your vocal cords. Even though adduct means towards the midline, I still never forgotten the picture of you standing up when we were in school and you had your hands in <laughs> a big plus sign. And yeah, that helped me. I mean, for our individual classes, all the way up to boards, I, I don't think I ever missed a question as far as I know, based on that, because that stuck so well. So yeah, so just think the lateral cricoretinoids, just put your hands out, stretch really wide when you're sitting in your test. And you're going to remember that's adducting the vocal cords. Yeah. And we'll just immensely increase your patient care experience because you know that lateral cricoretinoids adduct the vocal cords. Patients will be so thankful or not. I don't think it ever comes up. I don't think they, but, there. <laughs> but you have to remember it. Yeah, I know. Uh, it's hard to remember that this stuff is useful. Sometimes you're like, this is just memorization for memorization's sake, but it really does matter. Okay. The last one I want to uh, mention here is the thyroid retinoid muscle, and that will also adduct and shorten the vocal cords. So when you think about elongating the vocal cords, Again, think superior laryngeal nerve, that is going to be your cricothyroid muscle. When you think shortening, that's going to be your RLN, that can be the vocalis and also the thyroid muscle. And you'll want to remember, again, the posterior cricoarytenoids versus the lateral cricoarytenoids. Again, lateral will adduct the vocal cords. With that all in mind, let's talk a little bit briefly about what injury would look like. So if you have injury to the superior laryngeal nerve, and again, we're talking about the external division because we're talking about motor here, since the external branch will innervate the cricothyroid muscle, which will elongate or tense the vocal cords. If you have injury to that, then you're going to have the inability to tense the vocal cords or to uh, elongate the vocal cords. What is more of a worrisome issue is if you have injury to the recurrent laryngeal nerve, uh, this can be either unilateral or bilateral. We'll get into why that's important here in a second. You're probably already putting that together, but things that could cause injuries to the left side, like Cole mentioned, that left side is going to travel underneath the aortic arch. So it only makes sense that if you have issues with things relating to your heart, then you can have issues with this left recurrent laryngeal nerve. So something like uh, left atrial enlargement, if you have uh, aortic arch aneurysm, thoracic tumor, those would be all things that would cause unilateral damage. 
you can have bilateral damage from anything that has equal opportunity. So think of like an ET tube that is going to cause pressure on both sides or an LMA. If you have neck surgery where they're, they're uh, you know, involved right there uh, by those recurrent laryngeal nerves, then you can have bilateral injuries or again, tumors, depending on where they are, uh, could also cause injuries there. If bilateral injury occurs, this is where you have um, really bad news because think about it. If you have bilateral injury to the recurrent laryngeal nerve, those are the muscles that will cause the muscles to shorten. If you think about those muscles shortening, it's going to cause the vocal cords to relax and to uh, have some air movement there. So if you have bilateral injury, you have the uh, there's no muscles that will be counteracting the cricothyroid muscle. Remember that's the superior laryngeal nerve. So the cricothyroid muscle will elongate or shut the vocal cords. And so if you have bilateral injury of the recurrent laryngeal nerve, then you're going to have strider due to unopposed SLN innervation, which would be again to that cricothyroid muscle that's going to cause elongation, close your cords, and you don't have any ability to shorten them or to relax them. So with that in mind, now that we've covered all the anatomy of the airway, let's really now go into what we're going to be doing when we meet the patient in pre-op or in the room, and we're going to be going over an airway assessment. What are the things that we're looking for? Some of the quick hitting tests that we can do to give us an idea of how difficult this airway may be. So the first one that I think is the most common for all of us is a malampati score. What a malampati does is it looks at the oral pharynx and it compares how much of the tongue is taking up space relative to the size of that oropharynx. This is important because the bigger the tongue means the less room that we will have to visualize the vocal cords. So in order to do this test, you want to have the patient sitting upright with their neck extended, their mouth open, and sticking their tongue out to you. The most common misconception with this, I feel like, is having the patient phonate. It's very common that you hear practitioners tell the patients to say, ah, that actually skews the, the data for this. Um, now there is the discrepancy here is the reason that most people tell the patient to say, ah, is because they don't know how to actually have that tongue um, sticking out in a way that you can see the back of their mouth. And they may have a better malampati score than they're giving you unless you tell them to go ahead and phonate. Um, so that's where I feel like a lot of this misconception occurs is just trying to get that patient to actually stick their tongue out correctly. But what you're looking for when you do this, uh, it's graded in four classes. So class one is the most ideal. And that's when you're going to be able to see uh, pillars on the sides, the uvula, and the, both the soft and the hard palate. Uh, phase two or class two, you're not going to be able to see the, the pillars. Uh, class three, you're not going to be able to see the pillars or the uvula. And then class four, you will not be able to see the pillars, the uvula, or the soft palate. Uh, uh, common... Uh, acronym that we used uh, when we, I first learned this was PUSH, um, standing for P for pillars, U for uvula, S and H for soft and hard palate. Um, PUSH completely together there makes up class one. You lose the P, then you lose the U, then you lose the S as you go from each class from there on out. So again, here, the higher the class, that means the larger the tongue is compared to the oral pharynx, which means you're going to have less room to manipulate things to actually get a good view of the vocal cords. The next thing we want to look at is the submandibular space. And this is very similar to malampati. Uh, we're really wanting to know how much soft tissue there is that we can displace out of the way to visualize the vocal cords. So you want a bigger submandibular space, which gives you a bigger place 
to manipulate and move that soft tissue away and out of your, your view of the vocal cords. So what are things that limit this space? Ludwig angina, tumors or masses, burns, congenital defects, radiation scarring, any previous neck surgery. Uh, these are all things that uh, are not, not even a full comprehensive list of things that can decrease the submandibular space. Uh, so something you're going to be looking at for this is called a thyromental distance. This is going to estimate the size of that space in the submandibular area. And you're going to measure this from the chin or the mentum to the thyroid cartilage. So you have the patient extend their neck back and you want at least three centimeters, which is roughly three finger widths uh, to have a good visualization. So I'll often, when I walk into the patient's room, I go ahead and have them pull down their mask, do the melon potty, and then I have them extend their neck back and I see if I can fit three fingers there. Um, this does uh, one of two things for me. One, it tells me my thyromental distance, but it also tells me, do they have uh, the mobility of their neck that I can uh, manipulate with uh, to help me get a better view when I put them to sleep? Another thing that we can do to assess is the upper lip bite test. And this was named very, very well. The reason you're having them do this is to assess the ability to move the mandible forward. And this will ultimately allow better visualization during direct laryngoscopy. So the classes of the upper lip bite test, you have class one where the lower incisors can bite above the mammalian border of the upper lip. Class two is going to be where the lower incisors cannot reach the vermilion border. And if you can't remember that, that's basically where like the uh, pink of the lip will transition to the skin there above the lip. That's going to be the border you're looking for. And then class three is going to be where the lower incisors cannot even bite the upper lip. So that'll be the worst grade where if you have patients that have no ability to bite their upper lip, again, just picture this, they'll have very rigid mandible. It could be difficult to mask them for one. And two, it's going to be difficult when you're actually DLing to get movement there and get good visualization. Another test that you can look at is the incisor gap. So this will be where you're looking at the distance between the incisors. Ideally, you want two to three finger breaths between the incisors you'll have them open their mouth very wide. And then this is where you can, again, evaluate the distance there between their teeth. Another thing that we can look at is the atlanto-occipital joint mobility. This is going to look at their ability to extend their neck. And this will be a good evaluation of if we'll be able to get them into sniffing position or not. Usually you'll see this impaired with patients with RA, if they have Down syndrome, uh, often with diabetic patients, you'll see decreased mobility obviously with trauma, or if you have any kind of surgical fixation, then you would have decreased mobility as well. But this is something that you'll want to, oftentimes this doesn't feel like a completely different assessment. You'll have them do this kind of as you're doing these other ones, maybe as you're having that show you the incisor gap, uh, you'll also have them move their head all the way back, you know, chin to chest, put their nose all the way to the ceiling, ear to the shoulder, ear to the other shoulder, get a really good idea of how much they'll be able to move. Ultimately, you want to know if they'll be able to extend their neck. That's what we want to do. But a lot of this will just give you information as far as if there's any prior injury or if they have any stiffness there prior to going back and going to sleep. Another thing that I don't really evaluate all that often, unless I think that we're getting into a difficult intubation, is their palate. If you have somebody who has a highly arched or narrow palate, then this would be a more difficult intubation. Again, this is not something that I routinely will look for, and I don't think many people do, but this is also another indicator that would tell you that you might have a difficult intubation. 
we all know this, but you also, when you walk into the room, probably the first thing that you're seeing is their neck anatomy. And this will be a indication for uh, difficult to mask, but also difficult to move that soft tissue out of the way for the ability to uh, get a good view. So if you walk in and you see a short, thick neck, this is going to be obviously a more difficult intubation. You want them to have full neck mobility. Like what I talked about with the lano-occipital joint mobility, this is obviously going to be decreased if they have a lot of tissue there around the neck. And so this is why you might want to have them touch their chin to their chest and just see how much ability they have to do that. If it looks you know, deceptive, like that might be just kind of uh, soft skin versus maybe more, they really do have a large neck that would indicate that they have uh, less ability to move that soft tissue out of the way again to get a good view. In summary, the things that we're looking at for difficult intubation is going to be a small mouth, inability to open real wide, short, thick neck. If you have a malampotty three or four, if they have an overbite, long incisors, again, this kind of goes to with a small mouth opening, decreased cervical mobility. If they have a high arched palate, uh, those are all going to be things that will compound one with another to make a very difficult intubation. So those are all things that you'll assess for individually. Like I said, many of us probably do this all together, but it's important to be able to, to articulate the different assessments here at the beginning so that we understand what we're looking for, why we're using that assessment, what those assessments will tell us specifically about the intubation. So I, I, again, I think this is all information that you know, but oftentimes we kind of just run all of this together. It's important that we uh, delineate each of these specifically. And briefly here, before we move into the actual equipment, while we're talking about difficult intubation, uh, different things that we can look for that would give us an idea if we're going to have a difficult intubation, let's just briefly talk about what are signs that are going to give us a difficult mask ventilation. Uh, so these are not limited to this list at all, but some of the main things that we're going to be looking for are facial hair. Obviously, I feel like we've all had instances where you have a patient with a lot of facial hair, you just can't get a good seal. Um, increased body mass index, uh, age older than 55, uh, lack of teeth. So if they have dentures that have been removed, it just doesn't give that structure in their cheeks to provide a, a good seal. Uh, the patient has a history of snoring or obstructive sleep apnea, uh, male gender, malampotty class three or four, and then limited ability to protrude the mandible. So these are all things, again, not comprehensive. There's more to this list, but these are some main things that you'd be looking for that would tell you you might have a difficult mass ventilation. So now let's move into the actual equipment. So first let's talk about blades. And I know blades are a, uh, a big uh, debate between a lot of practitioners of, of anesthesia providers along if you're a Miller user, are you a Mac user? What are the advantages of each we want to talk about right now? Uh, because there are people that use both very proficiently. Uh, some people are very, very proficient with the Miller blade and others uh, solely use Mac. And uh, some people can go back and forth in between. So kudos to you that can. But I feel like most people that I've come into to contact with uh, have, have found their, uh, their better of the two that they like to use and have kind of perfected the technique with them. Uh, but let's briefly go through the technique. Uh, so with a Macintosh blade, a Mac blade, uh, the advantage here is that it, it's a curved blade, so it's going to have less trauma uh, to the teeth and anything that it passes in the mouth prior to uh, reaching the larynx. And so this allows for, uh, with the curved blade, allows for more room of the passage of the endotracheal tube. Um, it has a larger flange, um, which improves the ability to sweep the tongue to the side. 
So there's really less trauma to the soft tissue when compared to the Miller blade. However, with the Miller blade though, the advantage is it's a straight blade. So you get a better exposure um, of that glottic opening when you lift the epiglottis out of the way. So it's a smaller profile as well. So it can be beneficial in patients if they have a very small mouth opening. And when you have a big Mac blade in there, you're going to have a very limited view. Whereas a Miller blade, it gives you more of a view because it's, it's, it's less bulk. So in terms of how do we use these blades? So again, uh, this is just review for a lot of us here, but a Macintosh blade uh, the tip of the blade, the ideal spot is to advance it into the anterior part of the epiglottis, as you mentioned before, it's called the vallecula. When you do that, once you reach into that vallecula and you lift up and away, it'll flip the epiglottis up and hopefully expose the glottic opening underneath. Obviously, that's not always the case, but that's what we hope to see. With a Miller blade, you want to advance the tip of the blade past the epiglottis, then you lift up and actually physically lift the epiglottis away and expose that glottic opening rather than indirectly flipping the epiglottis up with the MAC blade. In terms of endotracheal tubes, so they're going to be sized according to their internal diameter. Uh, this becomes really important uh, when we're talking about uh, using fiber optic intubations or using endoconduits to uh, feed endotracheal tubes through. Uh, just know that the size is based on the internal diameter and not the out side diameter. Uh, so just keep in mind that they're in 0.5 millimeter internal diameter increments. Uh, they are usually radiopaque, so we can view them uh, on an x-ray, figure out where the position is at. They're also transparent, so you can see fogging or misting inside as the patient exhales that uh, CO2. Um, so it's usually one of the first ways that a practitioner can tell if they have intubated into the trachea or not, is seeing that fog and that mist come back. Uh, again, that's not the uh, sole way that we use to determine that we're in the accurate spot, but that is one of the first ways. Usually ET tubes will have cuffs. You can also have some that don't, um, but when you do have a cuff, this allows for pressure ventilation and prevents gastric aspiration back into the lungs. Ideally, you want to keep the cuff pressure under 25 centimeters of water to prevent any ischemic uh, injury to the tracheal tissue there. Most of the tubes use a high volume, low pressure cuff rather than a low volume and a high pressure cuff. Uh, the reason is the high volume, low pressure cuffs protect from ischemia the best. Uh, but be careful uh, if you're using nitrous, uh, they can get into the cuff and actually overinflate the cuff. So for this reason, uh, it is important if you're gonna be using nitrous throughout the case, fill the cuff with the same nitrous mixture that'll be used during the case. This is the most ideal way to practice this. Honestly, I can say this is not something that I do. Uh, but I'm also not somebody that likes to use nitrous throughout my whole case. I typically, if I'm going to use it, whether use it on induction with a kid um, or I'll be using it on wake up to try to get my gas off sooner um, and try to time my wake up better. So it's not really something that I uh, will actually fill the cuff with. Tanner, have you ever done this before? I don't. Often when I'm using nitrous, I just use it for wake ups or uh, maybe intermittently, uh, usually just for wake ups though. And so I've never chosen to fill the cuff with nitrous. Yeah. And I feel like, I mean, a lot of practitioners, you either love nitrous or you don't use it hardly at all. So maybe the people that typically use it throughout a whole case would, would be more uh, apt to go ahead and fill the cup with the, the nitrous mixture. Other things about the ET tube. So they all have a Murphy's eye, which is a second opening at the end of the tube. And uh, you just got to be really careful here. You got to watch your stylet. If you use a stylet, um, that it doesn't poke through this and it can also damage the tissue during intubation if that's the case. And then just very briefly, these are not all of them, but there's a couple different variations of ET tubes. Uh, you can have an evac tube. It allows a second 
lumen for you to do subglottic suctioning through. Um, this is very nice if you have a patient that's going to be going to the ICU and remain intubated for a while, they can continue to suction the patient there. You can also do microlaryngeal tubes. Uh, these are pediatric size diameter tubes, but they have an adult length. So they're small enough to move side to side uh, in the trachea if you have any airway surgeries. Because uh, typically, if you would use a smaller diameter pediatric tube, you would not have a length to reach the adult larynx. So that's why these are very beneficial. Ray tubes, uh, they have a massive curvature at the distal end where it attaches to the ventilator uh, circuit. So this allows for when the tube comes out of the mouth or the nose, depending on which one you're using, it'll have a very big curve and be able to go away from any surgical site that would be happening uh, on the face, the mouth, et cetera. Uh, complications though with ET tubes. So this can result in damage to the tracheal mucosa, as we talked about with uh, the cuffs there. So be very mindful of that. If you have any type of, of an obstruction in the endotracheal tube due to either kinking or secretions that can really alter the amount of uh, pressure, uh, whether positive or negative inside the lungs and cause some trauma there. Uh, if you have an endobrachial placement of the tip of the tube, it can result in barotrauma to the ventilated lung, as well as underventilation to the opposite lung. These are all things that we know. Um, it's just mindful to think about again. Um, and again, I, it's it's always good to re-mention here, do not do a nasal endotracheal tube if you have any skull or facial fracture that would have any issues there in terms of uh, preventing the, the natural passage of that ET tube through the nasal cavity. Um, other contraindications to nasal ET tubes would be pregnancy or coagulopathy. So if you have any patient that's really at an increased risk of bleeding, you don't want to be doing a nasal endotracheal tube if you can help it. The next thing we want to talk about is something that we probably all use very frequently, uh, but it's again, just another thing that it's helpful to go back and review. So oral and nasal airways, this will help you relieve your upper airway obstructions helps just displace the tongue and epiglottis from the posterior wall of the pharynx. So oftentimes when we get patients deep enough and their muscles relax, you'll have that tongue flop back there on that posterior wall. The airway will just allow to keep a patent airway there. And so while they're deep enough to tolerate the airway, they also are not uh, obstructing any longer. The main thing we want to talk about here is the couple of different types. And this is something that we probably know these exist, but just putting names to the devices is, is the goal here. So Ovisapien or Williams oral airways will have the ability to fiber optically intubate through them. And so these are very nice to use if you have somebody you're doing maybe an awake fiber optic, if they're able to tolerate the oral airway in their first this just prevents, you know, their tongue from kind of squirming around and getting in the way or uh, having somebody having to use gauze or something to kind of pull the tongue and displace it. The airway will, will take care of that. It's, an, it's a nice feature of it. In order to properly size that, make sure that you're measuring from the corner of the mouth to the earlobe. And uh, if you're going to use a nasal airway, you just do the earlobe to the nair instead of to the corner of the mouth. If the airway is not the appropriate size, then this will often make ventilation worse. If you think about it, the airways have a little bit of curve and we know that, but if it's not actually following their anatomy and say that curve is going into the posterior part of their tongue, that's only going to push that into the posterior part of their pharynx and close off their airway more. And so this is very important. It seems like a very small deal, but say you, you put in an oral airway and you still notice them obstructing quite a bit and could just be as simple as having the wrong size airway. So again, uh, often we probably just, you know, do very 
general and crude assessments as far as we use this airway for males, this airway for females. But if you're having trouble, uh, or it's always good practice to measure there again from the earlobe to either the corner of the mouth or to the nares, depending on which type of airway you're using. Like Cole mentioned with the nasal ET tubes, you're not going to want to use nasal airways. If, if you have a skull or facial fracture, uh, you don't want to use them in pregnancy. They have the risk there of bleeding with the very friable tissues. Uh, or if they again have any kind of coagulopathy, then you don't want to use that nasal airway. I think nasal airway is actually really nice, uh, not in those situations, obviously, but it's very nice because oftentimes that they will tolerate that a little better than the oral airway, and it won't cause the stimulation for them to uh, kind of cough and gag on the oral airway. So the nasal airway often, I think, is really nice if maybe you have trouble getting the oral airway in, or you simply just want to go straight to a nasal airway. Um, some people don't like it because sometimes if you don't if it doesn't pass nicely, then they can have some issues there or have some uh, lasting effects afterwards, just as far as some pain. Um, so you want to be careful. You don't want to obviously shove it in there, but uh, sometimes that nasal airway is very nice compared to the oral airway. Another thing that we can use uh, that is very, very nice. And it's basically just a large oral airway is the LMA. So laryngeal mask airway, super nice device. Again, this is going to be much review for a lot of people, but I think oftentimes we forget that we have this tool. And so it's, again, just important to run over some of the basics of it. So this is going to be superglottic airway device is going to sit above or surround the glottis. The advantage to this is if you're in a sticky situation, say you are having trouble masking a patient, you're able to place this very quickly. You don't need another tool. You don't need a laryngoscope. Uh, it's very quick and easy not super stimulating. So you can get less coughing and bucking when you're removing it. You don't need muscle mm -hmm. relaxant. Now, when you say it's pretty easy, I mean, <laughs> I feel like it depends on the style though, that you have. Okay. Well, that's true. Uh, well, I think it's easy when you compare it to DL, wouldn't you say? Yeah. If you can get it to sit right, right off the bat and get it behind the tongue and the tip doesn't flip on you, it's qu way quicker, I think, than doing an ET tube and like you said, less stimulating, but I, I feel like it really depends on the different make or brand of, of what LMAs your facility carries. Um, yeah. I feel like some flip way more frequently than the others. Like I just had a, a patient today that I needed to quickly use an LMA on as a rescue and uh, I could not get it to, to get in right. And I didn't have time to even, to even try to deal with it and try again. Um, because of the fact that I was using it as a rescue, I ended up having to just go straight to, to intubate. But, but again, you're right though. I mean, theoretically it should be very easy. Um, it's a great tool to use if you're not like crashing, crashing. Um, otherwise I'd go straight to an ET tube probably. Yeah, you're right. I'm not, and it's not like it's going to be just like a slam dunk every single time. Uh, but it is something again, to keep in your back pocket, especially when things are getting a little dicey. Often you can buy yourself some time with just slipping an LMA in and, uh, maybe you're able to ventilate that way. Wouldn't you say like, I feel like in terms of like rescue wise, for me, it, I feel like an LMA is a great tool. If, if you go to intubate and you can't, you can't get a good view and the patient's desatting and you can't mask really well, that's when I would try to use an LMA if I'm not already planning to use an LMA for this, for the case. Oh yeah, for sure. I, I, I think of one case in particular, I was doing a spinal case, cervical fusion. So you didn't want to have a lot of mobility uh, while you were intubating. 
and really, really large neck. So difficult to mask anyways, kind of large face, hard to really grab onto the jawline and couldn't intubate. And the patient was desatting pretty quickly, didn't have a lot of reserve. And we tried doing a two-person mask. And even with that, it was just difficult, again, keeping stability in the spine. And then also just the body habitus made it difficult. So just slipped into LMA and it was like butter. I mean, it was super easy to ventilate. Obviously you want to be careful of your pressures. And I think in this situation, when you are using as a rescue, oftentimes you get excited and you're just wanting to pump a bunch of air in and get that sat back up. And that's where you can get into trouble with pumping air into the stomach and then having aspiration. But yeah, I mean, you're exactly right. A really nice rescue. And I think oftentimes, you know, they talk about the, the problem that people get into is trying the same thing over and over and over again. And an LMA is just a, a nice slick little thing that you can do to either do the whole case. If you decide we're not going to mess with this, we'll just do the whole thing with the LMA or a nice thing to buy you some time to, to ventilate pretty easily. But you're right. The whole, the whole thing is if you can get it to seat, right. And that's, that's the trick for me. I think the, the thing that I have stuck with one of the people that I was training with told me to always use a tongue depressor on the tongue, pull the tongue forward, and then place the LMA basically to right where the soft palate starts and then kind of, uh, hold their head a little bit. If you don't have any issues with cervical mobility, get them more in like a sniffing position as you advance it. And it seems like it goes in really nicely. That tongue is out of the way with the tongue depressor. Um, obviously you take the tongue depressor out before you would start advancing any further. But when I first started, I'd often get trouble with the LMAs kind of hanging up on the tongue and then you're having trouble getting it past the tongue and then back there to seat correctly. The other thing is a lot of times, depending on what kind of uh, make of LMA you have, and I feel like this plays a huge role is sometimes that tip will want to flip on you and then it won't want to follow the natural anatomy and go down and you'll feel like you're really, really pushing. And so often um, you can reach back there if you're comfortable with it and flip that tip down, or you can just inflate it a little bit. And I found that's been helpful too. If you inflate the cuff a little bit more, that allows it to be less malleable and you're not going to have that tip flip up quite as easily. But again, those are, those are just some tricks that I feel like are helpful. Obviously having enough lubrication on it where it will slide down will be helpful as well. But between those tips and tricks, I think that your success rate is, is usually pretty high. While we're talking about placement, let's take a quick second to talk about what might make this more difficult. And we already kind of talked about this a little bit, but same, some of the things are, are very similar with difficulty with intubating. So a small mouth opening is going to make anything that we're doing uh, as far as an airway difficult. If you have fixed cervical spine deformity, this might be a reason that you would choose to use this again, like my scenario of where you were having difficulty masking and might make this better. It's still going to make it a little more difficult to place properly. If you have poor dentition or you have large incisors, again, those are the same uh, complications that we run into with an actual intubation. If you have increased BMI or male gender, those are all things that will uh, potentially cause a more difficult placement of an LMA. Another way that you can place this, and uh, this is something that I don't do very frequently, but um, you can insert with the opening facing the superior wall. And then as you place it, you can spin the LMA uh, basically 180 degrees after you advance part of the way. So um, 
the reason I don't love this is sometimes I feel like it can kind of fold almost like a, a taco there when you've flipped it. If it doesn't fully flip, then it kind of folds over on itself. But sometimes I think this is helpful if you're really struggling. This is just another technique you can use. Uh, sometimes it's helpful for the tip not to fold down. If again, you place it, the openings towards the roof of the mouth. And then as you place it, you can spin it 180 degrees. The other important thing with an LMA is you got to make sure you have the right size. Uh, size is key in terms of determining if you're going to have it seat right and you're not going to have any air leakage. Um, again, that's really the case with every type of airway equipment, having the right size. But really here, <clears throat> I feel like a lot of people, if they place the wrong size, they'll try to compensate by either deflating or inflating the cuff and changing the, the amount of air in there. And it just, from my experience, it just doesn't sit right. And so if you can really size the LMA correct uh, from the beginning, that really goes a long way. Um, plus just getting it to, to fit back there um, in a patient's mouth, you don't want to use too big of an LMA size. So ideally, uh, textbook wise, the kilograms of the patient's weight is what's used to determine the size of what LMA you should use. For my personal practice, I feel like I weigh a lot of the height into it as well. Um, I don't care as much about how much extra adipose tissue someone has kilogram wise, because I don't feel like that changes the anatomy of the size of the mouth necessarily. Whereas I feel like the height kind of gives me a better, uh, judgment as to what type of LMA size I should use. Um, so really it's kind of a balance there between, between the kilograms and the height of a patient contraindications for using LMAs. So patients that are at risk for regurgitation of gastric contents um, should not be getting an LMA. Uh, there are versions you can use that you um, has, has an extra lumen that you can go ahead and, and suck gastric contents out. But in my opinion, if you're going to be using an LMA for that purpose, should you really be using an LMA at all um, if, if they're going to be at risk of aspirating? So in my personal practice, I would just tube a patient um, that's going to be having that high risk. Uh, another contraindication would be a prone position, uh, obesity, uh, pregnant patients, very long surgical time, and intra-abdominal or airway procedures. So what are the complications then of an LMA? So if you use it in a difficult airway patient, uh, some of the things that you can see would be bronchospasm, post-operative swallowing difficulties. Uh, you can have respiratory obstruction, uh, laryngeal nerve injury, edema, and then hypoglossal nerve paralysis. As I mentioned before, there are, there are several special kinds of LMAs that you can use that have different advantages. So as I mentioned before, some of them have a second lumen that acts as an esophageal vent. You can also have a airway channel uh, that can be used as a conduit for intubation. So an LMA fast track, and this is used for intubation purposes. And how you would do this is you'd place the LMA normally, you'd verify your ventilation, and then you would feed an appropriate size ET tube through that LMA. And then you lift the LMA handle. So this fast track has a, a LMA handle on it that you can lift anteriorly as you advance the ET tube, almost as if you would be using a blade. Um, and once that ET tube goes into the trachea, uh, you can either just manually advance it, or you can use a fiber optic scope to visualize the glottic opening through that LMA and then feed the ET tube through the fiber optic scope, verify your adequate ventilation, and then you remove the LMA. Again, with the positive pressure of these LMAs, as Tanner mentioned, if you go over 20 centimeters of water, you really increase the risk then of getting air into the stomach and having aspiration occur. So you want to keep your pressures, your airway pressures less than 20. 
The cup pressures, though, you want to keep less than 60. And again, this is to prevent injury to the airway nerves. While we're talking about equipment, we're just going to briefly talk about the King Learn Drill Tube Airway or the Comba Tube. This is probably not something that we'll use in the hospital setting. Usually this is pre-hospital that you'll see these placed. Like still, though, if you're doing a trauma, receiving a trauma, it's helpful to understand this equipment that you know how to, if you're going to switch it out, you, you know what you're working with. Or in some event, if you choose to use this in the hospital setting, uh, good to talk through it here. It's similar to an LMA in that you're going to place it blindly, but it's very different from an LMA in that you have several different ports. And the goal initially is to get the uh, tube to go into the esophagus. At that point, you're going to inflate the distal balloon that's going to occlude the esophagus, and then you'll inflate the proximal balloon that's going to occlude the posterior oropharynx. So this now has occluded the uh, superiorly, it's, it's occluded the posterior oropharynx there. No air is going to be coming up uh, or out of the mouth. It's not, it's not an open airway, um, but it's also going to occlude the esophagus. You're not going to be putting any air there, ideally into the esophagus, into the stomach. The space between those two balloons, that's what's going to allow ventilation at the level of your glottic opening. So you're not putting anything actually through the cords. It's going to be, uh, again, not a secured airway, but that air movement from between the two balloons is going to be able to pass there through the cords and be able to ventilate the patient that way. It has two lumens they're able to ventilate through. So if you blindly insert into the trachea on accident, then you can ventilate through the tracheal lumen. If you insert into the esophagus, which is ideally the goal, then you'll just inflate both balloons and then ventilate through the space in between those two. Uh, the complication here is that you could have esophageal rupture if you overinflate that distal balloon. Also, it's difficult to uh, assess just because you're doing this blind exactly where you are other than based on lung sounds. And if you have any sort of trauma that's preventing you from getting really clear lung sounds, again, this could be kind of a tricky uh, device to use, but it's something again, that you may want to know uh, how to use it for yourself, or especially if you're dealing with a trauma and this has been placed pre-hospital. The next two things that we're going to talk about are things that are much more common to us, things that we use probably on a weekly basis, maybe even on a daily basis. The first is just going to be your video laryngoscope. These are going to be things like your CMAC, your GlideScope. Um, many ORs now have GlideScopes in probably every room. If not, you have several around the facility usually. But this is becoming the standard of care for difficult intubations. And so this is going to help you obtain a better view of the larynx by providing uh, indirect visualization of the glottic opening. So if you have patients who have limited mouth opening, if they have the inability to flex their neck, or if they have difficult airway anatomy, again, anything that would give you insight that this might be a difficult intubation, often you're going straight to these video laryngoscopes. This is really nice if somebody is there for a C-spine fusion or something like that, we'll just immediately go to the video laryngoscope just to rule out any kind of movement. We have very nice uh, curves with the anatomy and so you're not needing to align those axes, but instead this video here at the end of the blade is allowing you to, to visualize what you need to see. And then you're able to place this with the curved stylet uh, without needing to, you know, align those axes. Like I said, there's two specific types that I just want to touch on quickly are channeled video laryngoscope blades. 
Again, oftentimes you see these in pre-hospital settings, but this is the air track and the King version. So I'll have a guide that you can actually load the endotracheal tube on. And so then as the uh, blade goes towards the glottic opening, you are able to actually just insert the tube off of that channel there. And then that will allow you to actually intubate with the ET tube already loaded onto the blade. The next one I want to talk about is our fiber optic intubation. And again, this is something that we are probably very familiar with, but just want to talk about a few different methods here and some of the specifics. In general, the nasal route is going to be easier than the oral route. This is simply because you're already lined up with the vocal cords as you come through the nasal passage, whereas the oral passage, you're going to have much more of an acute angle to get lined up. And so if this is a consideration as far as having a difficult view, often going through the nasal passage will give you a better alignment as far as approaching the glottic opening. Like we mentioned with the nasal airways and the oral airways, you'll also have a decreased risk for your gag reflex going through the nasal passage. This could be a consideration if you're trying to do an awake fiber optic. Often I find though that people are much more um, accepting of doing an oral awake fiber optic than nasal, unless you're able to numb that up very well. It seems to just go smoother going through the oral airway. The disadvantage of going through the nasal passage, like we mentioned with the other mechanisms, is just going to be your bleeding. So again, don't use this with a pregnant patient, anybody who has coagulation, abnormalities, skull fractures, uh, those will be things they all know avoid that. If you're choosing to do an awake fiber optic intubation, you can do topical anesthesia of the tongue and oral pharynx. You can do that by either spraying local anesthetic or um, applying that directly, or you can do bilateral blocks of the glossopharyngeal nerve. Remember that the glossopharyngeal nerve usually you use two mils of 2% lidocaine and you inject that at a depth of half a centimeter. You're always going to want to aspirate. We talk about this for any of your blocks that you're doing, you're going to want to aspirate, but especially here, you want to make sure that you're aspirating, get a negative aspiration, and then you're going to be inserting here, like I said, a depth of 0.5 centimeters about, you gonna be doing that just at the base there at the interior tonsillar pillar. Probably what we use more frequently is the topical anesthesia done with lidocaine you can start by spraying the front of the mouth and work back into the oral pharynx. Many times you'll just use like a nebulizer will be a much simpler way to do this. You'll have the patient inhaling the spray breathing on this nebulized form of the lidocaine, and that will help numb them as well. Remember, I just talked about the glossopharyngeal nerve block that will block sensation to the posterior third of the tongue and the vollecula. So this is in effect, just going to get rid of your gag reflex. The other blocks that you can do is you can do a superior lyndrial nerve block, and that will block sensation to the laryngeal structure above the vocal cords. Do this, you'll block by placing the patient supine. You'll have them extend their neck and you'll inject two mils of the 2% lidocaine just inferior and lateral to the hyoid bone. So for both of these, you're going to inject the two mils of the 2% lidocaine. The other block that you can do is a recurrent laryngeal block, and this will block sensation to the vocal cords and trachea. You'll place the patient supine with neck extended, and this is a little different. You'll inject five mils of 4% lidocaine through the cricothyroid membrane into the trachea. This will have the patient 
cough, it, a lot of times they'll say to tell the patient to cough, the patient's going to cough as soon as you do this. Um, and that will basically cause the lidocaine to spread around and cause that numbness there in the airway. Another mechanism that I like to do is as you are doing the fiber optic intubation, you could actually load on the lidocaine. You can use 4% lidocaine, like the what you typically would use with an LTA kit. You can actually put that onto the infusion port of many of the fiber optic scopes. And then what you can do is if you, you know, give them like a hurricane spray or something to numb the upper airway, as you're getting down towards the cords, as soon as you get good visualization of the cords, you're looking down at them, you can give this last 4% lidocaine uh, infusion basically, and it will spray down onto the cords. This will cause them to cough pretty violently. And this is something that you obviously would warn them about. You say, I'm about to you know, give you some lidocaine. You're going to feel the urge to cough. That's okay. Cough. And you'll just stay very still as they're coughing. The coughing is actually really good because similar to the recurrent laryngeal block where you place that below the cords, if you do this, it's not going to, um, it's going to save them a needle stick, obviously, but then it's also going to have a lot of the same effects as far as them coughing and spreading that local anesthetic around. So many times I think this is a really smooth way to do it because then once you're above the cords, you get a good visual, you can go ahead and spray that last bit of lidocaine in, let them cough, stay still as they're doing that. And then once they kind of settle in, that's numbed the whole area, you're already in position. Now you just need to advance the tube through. And often this is very uh, much less stimulating than if you wouldn't do this last little part and say you just numbed the, the, the top part. I think this part usually gets a little bit dicey as you try to get that tube through the cords. Now they're starting to cough and now you're getting them off to sleep after you verified placement. But if you do this last uh, little bit of lidocaine there just before going through the cords, it seems like it makes that whole situation a lot smoother and you aren't having to kind of rush quite as much as you would with trying to make them comfortable, getting them off to sleep, but then also making sure that you verified your placement. So hopefully you're still with us here. We got just a touch more to cover. Uh, these are last three things that we want to talk about are more accessory things that at least from my practice, I don't use uh, too often. Um, actually, the one of these I haven't used at all. Uh, but the first one we want to talk about uh, is an Eschman stylet or a bougie. And this is a flexible stylet with a tip that's bent at a 40 degree angle. And this is best used when you have uh, maybe a grade two uh, B or a, a grade three view uh, of the glottic opening. So you can see the epiglottis, you're trying to lift it away. You can just maybe see the, uh, the cartilage there. Uh, you know roughly where you're supposed to be going, but you just can't quite get that tube to, to go up and around. Uh, you can put this stylet through, and because it has that 40-degree angled bent, uh, you can face that in the anterior direction, so up around the epiglottis there, and pass into the glottic opening, and then use it as a conduit to then pass your ET tube through. So when you're first putting this stylet around and behind the epiglottis, uh, you have that, that tip, like I said, bent towards the anterior direction, so it can slide into the trachea. And if you're in the right spot, once you pass through the vocal cords, you'll feel the bumping as it goes uh, off the tracheal rings as you slide down. So if you see the, the tip disappear behind the epiglottis and you don't feel that bumping, you're probably in the esophagus. Uh, so go ahead and pull back and try again. And you really want to feel that, that bumping. It'll be pretty evident of what you're feeling there. Um, you want to advance until you're around 25 centimeters. 
And then uh, any T tube can be inserted over that that bougie or that stylet. Uh, if you get into any resistance when you try to pass that tube through the cords, uh, rotate the ET tube about ninety degrees. Um, that usually will allow it to pass and meet that uh, pass that resistance that it encounters. Don't advance the bougie though too far because it can actually cause some bronchial or distal tracheal punctures. Uh, so just be careful. Um, anytime we're we're putting things down in the airway, we obviously have the risk of puncturing. Um, the nice thing though with this bougie is you can also use it on extubation. Now this is something I've not done before, but if you have a patient that you're concerned that you may need to reintubate, you can uh, very easily just put this bougie down, extubate the patient, and leave it in as, as a conduit that if you need to quickly reintubate, you can. The one that I haven't used before is a trach light lighted stylet. What this is uh, is it's a exactly what the name uh, gives away. It's a lighted stylet that can be used to help determine your location. So if you have a patient that uh, has a very small mouth opening, very limited lip neck, very limited neck mobility, uh, you can go ahead and use this. Uh, what you would do um, is you would try to intubate using this lighted stylet, and you're going to be watching the anterior surface of the neck as you do this. And if you go into the trachea you're going to see a very circumscribed, brighter glow uh, right below the thyroid uh, cartilage. Whereas if you get into the esophagus, you're not going to have that circumscribed glow, and it's actually going to be very diffuse in color. Um, so again, here, you're just basically using how bright this light is to determine if you're on the anterior part of the anatomy, which is the trachea, or if you're on the uh, lower part, which would be the esophagus. Now, you don't want to use this in patients with upper airway tumors, polyps, or any altered anatomy. Uh, for obvious reasons, you're blindly uh, putting this through. Um, and it's, it's really less effective in patients with short, thick necks as well, because you can't really tell a difference between the bright and the diffuse coloring, uh, depending on your anatomy. Again, I've never used this before, but I've checked out a couple of videos on this, and it actually looks pretty fascinating. Uh, so I encourage you to go look up some videos of this if you haven't before. And the very last thing we want to quickly talk about is the airway exchange catheters. Um, so these catheters can be advanced uh, through the existing endotracheal tube in order to be a guide to switch out for a new endotracheal tube, either because maybe you're changing the size of the tube, uh, the tube has, has been damaged in some way, uh, or typically I feel like this is used maybe at the end of a case where you would have needed a double lumen tube. And now the patient is going to be going up to the ICU and you need to keep them intubated and you're going to be transitioning to a single lumen tube. So what you would do here, you advance that catheter through the existing ET tube, remove the ET tube, and then put the new ET tube on top of that catheter, slide it back through. Again, just like the bougie, if you need to, you can rotate it at 90 degrees if you meet resistance. The nice thing about these catheters, what makes them different simply from just a bougie, is that they can be used for gas exchange via jet ventilation, um, and they can be used uh, for oxygen insufflation um, from a bag mask. Again, there's always risks with things, though. So the risk with these catheters include tracheal and bronchial perforation. So just be careful um, with how gentle you are when you're sliding these catheters through. So that wraps us up with going through an airway anatomy assessment and then the equipment that we typically would use uh, from an anesthesia standpoint. I know this was a lot of information, so thank you so much for sticking with us through this. Hopefully, it's been a good review for you. Uh, maybe you've learned a couple things through this. Hopefully, I know that we learned several things just by going back through all this and, and reorganizing it all. It's just very beneficial um, because I feel like a lot of times we get into our set ways of what things we like to use and we don't uh, pay attention to the, the alternate 
types of equipment that are out there. Um, and there may be some better things for different situations.